All right, guys. Welcome. My name is Drew, for those of you who don't know me, and we are starting a new series today called God With Us. And so think of this message as a preparation for all of our hearts for Christmas. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is maybe looking at a place in the Bible that you're unfamiliar with, and we're looking at the tabernacle. And here's the way I want you to think about the tabernacle. Do you remember as a kid making what's called a diorama? Okay, maybe that brings back happy memories for you, or maybe like me, it brings back awful memories for you. But essentially, what you do with a diorama is you take a shoebox, and inside of that shoebox, you build like a historical scene. And what that's supposed to do is vividly portray something that happened in the past so that when people look at it, they can say, oh, that's what this battle in World War II was like, or that's what this historical event was like. The reason it's a negative memory for me is the reaction to my dioramas was usually, nice try. (laughs) Not not the most artistic person in the world. But what we're going to see is that God is actually very good at this sort of thing, And so he actually built something in the Old Testament that vividly portrays for us this reality that God is with us. And I think what it's going to do for us is it's really going to enrich our experience of the message of Christmas to understand this historical reality. So here's sort of the big idea that's going to tie together what we're talking about this morning, is that the tabernacle dramatizes the reality that God is with us. So as we feel afraid or as we feel anxious during this holiday season, we need to be reminded that God is with us. And one of the tools in our tool belts that we have, we'll see, is the tabernacle to understand this reality. So we're we're looking at three realities that the tabernacle vividly portrays about the God who is with us. And the, the first one is that God is with us in humility. God is with us in humility. So we're looking at Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 2, and then we're looking at verses 8 through 9. So here's what that text says. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Okay, so we're talking here about the building of the tabernacle. So go back a little ways in Israel's history, and what's happened is they had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and then God had miraculously rescued them out of Egypt, and now they had become a nomadic people. And so they were living in tents. And so what God does is he comes to them and says, hey guys, I want you to build me a tent because I want to live in your midst. Now there was actually a historical precedent for this already. So many of the people who lived around Israel were also nomadic people. And what was true of them is that as they set up their encampment, all of these different groups of people had a king. And that king 
would actually camp in the tent that was in the midst of the people. So the midst here literally means the very central spot. And so what God does is he comes to his people and he says, I want you to use all your gifts, talents, and abilities, contributions of money, time, and energy, and I want you to build me a tent according to this very specific pattern because I want to tell you some things about myself. And a very basic observation about that is that God wants to be with his people. He wants to be with them. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of tents or camping, whatever, but again, I've got some negative memories associated with this. So I remember as a kid, one summer, we decided that we were going to camp for one week of our summer family vacation, and then we were going to stay in a cabin for the other week of our family vacation. Now, this was a change because normally what we would do is we would spend the entire two weeks in a cabin. But this week, we decided we were going to camp. And this happened to be a historically hot summer in the state of Kentucky where we would go. And so it was like over 100 degrees. And I remember the water was so hot that we would go to swim to to cool down. And you would actually have to sort of swim to the bottom of the lake to get any relief from the temperature. And so we've actually got this kind of famous family picture, maybe you have some of these, where my, my siblings and I did not deal well with the heat, and so we spent our time taking our anger out on each other. And so there were, there were various fights over the s'mores and, and those types of things, and, and so there's this one family photo where my parents kind of made us get together, and we've got our arms around each other, and we're faking like we're happy because we don't want it documented that this fight took place and that we treated each other in such terrible ways. But anyway, that's basically my primary memory of camping, all right? That week, and it was just terrible. I just remember my dad being, you know, more frustrated than normal, and it just didn't go well. We did a lot of other things well together as a family. Camping was not one of them. And so when I think of God saying, I'm going to camp in your midst, I think, what a humble God. This is the God of all the universe. And and the Israelites actually didn't fail to believe at this time that God was omnipresent. So he had made it very clear to them that God was everywhere. But what he's saying is, I'm going to bring my specific, unique presence into this place in your midst. I am going to become like one of you in the sense that I am going to come and live in a tent with you. And so I don't know what your perception of God was when you came into the room, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what we believe at Salt City Church is that God is here. He's actually present with us. And you might think, well, there's no way God would be present with me. You you don't know my background. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know how far I feel from God right now. And I want to tell you that God is so humble that he actually wants to meet you in this place. He actually wants relationship with you. He actually wants to be with you. And the same God who was willing to go from heaven 
to live in a tent in the middle of the desert is willing to come and be a part of your life. He wants to know you. But, but that's not all we believe about God. And I think this is where the story gets a little bit complicated for people. We don't believe that God is a hippie who lives in a tent, who's just smiling at everybody and, and happy all the time. And he's just a really nice guy. We also believe that God is with us in holiness. God is a holy God. And holiness means his set-apartness, his otherness, the ways that he's different for, uh, from us. It literally means his weight, the heaviness of his presence, his glory. God is unlike anyone else in the universe. He's in a category that is absolutely by itself. And so what we're going to see is that the whole structure of the tabernacle, of this tent that God tells his people to build, is built in such a way to communicate this reality that God is both with his people, but he is distinct, different, and separate from him. So what we're going to do is we're going to actually walk through the different parts of the tabernacle. And I'm going to sort of show you what I mean when I'm describing this place. And we're going to talk about how it communicates his holiness. And so one of the things I want you to observe is that as we sort of move from the outside of the tabernacle toward the middle of the tabernacle, that God's accessibility becomes less and less and the materials that are used become more and more precious. Both of these things are meant to communicate the holiness of God. So if you look at the, at the picture that's on the screen of, of the tabernacle, that outer courtyard is, um, is sort of that fenced-in area. And that's what we're going to talk about first. So that area was 75 feet by 150 feet. So it's 10,000 square feet. So there were blue, purple, and scarlet yarns on four posts, sort of by the entrance of the place. What you can't see in that picture is that the artistry that was used to create this place was incredibly fine. It was incredibly well done. This courtyard itself is fenced in in 60 pillars. And actually those white curtains that are used between those pillars are made out of linen. There's sort of this bath-looking thing inside of the courtyard. That's called a laver. And what would happen there is that the priests, before they would enter into the building that's on the premises there, they would actually wash themselves. They would cleanse themselves. It was a way of, of saying, we are unclean. We need to be made clean. We need our sin to be washed away. It was, it was an admission that even the people that were set apart to be holy were themselves not holy. You also see the bronze altar there with the four horns or the four poles sort of sticking out of it. And the bronze altar was used for the sacrifice of animals for sin. What's clear throughout the Old Testament is without shedding of blood, 
There is no forgiveness of sins. So there were sacrifices happening at the tabernacle as long as the tabernacle was set up in this courtyard. There was continually sacrifice happening all the time because people never failed to be without sin. And the horns were used to actually tie the animals on. I think we, we can kind of have a cleaned up Western view of the tabernacle. Guys, this was a bloody place. This was a, a nasty place. This was a place where, where animals' throats were slit. They were killed and they were placed on this altar. And it was to say, we are a sinful people and we need God's forgiveness. And so what's true about this courtyard is that only Jews and converted Gentiles had access to this place. The access was limited and they weren't allowed in this place at all times, but only at specific times. So Jews would be allowed in this courtyard. Let's sort of move in from the courtyard to the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was this building that was 15 feet wide by 45 feet long with a roof 15 feet tall. The frame was uh, 50 pillars made of wood and they were actually covered with solid gold. It, uh, each pillar, pillar in addition rested on two silver pedestals and the pillars were connected by golden crossbars. So again, we're getting into more and more precious materials. We went from bronze to gold and silver. And then there's double pillars in each corner, also overlaid with gold for extra stability. And this building is actually covered with four layers of fabric. First, it's covered with linen that's adorned with blue, scarlet, and purple yarn with cherubim. So those are angelic creatures embroidered into that material. It's also covered with goat hair and ram's skins dyed red, representing the blood that's needed to even enter into that room to get closer to the presence of God. And then finally, you have this material made out of sea cows. And so what, what most people think is that this was either manatees, seals, or dolphins. And the reason they use this material is because it was slick and weather resistant. So this is a super well-made tent. This isn't your average Coleman tent that you go get at Walmart, right? This is a serious tent that God is living in, much nicer than the tents that the people in Israel are living in. And then there's a large curtain that separated the courtyard from the holy place. And so to the average person, the message of the tabernacle was no trespassing. Only the priests were allowed to go into the tabernacle. And they were only allowed to be there in order to complete tasks that God had them go in there to complete. So then the tabernacle is actually broken down into two sections. You have the holy place and the holy of holies. So let me describe each of these places for you. First of all, you have the holy place. So there you have, again, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. This section of the tabernacle is 15 feet by 30 feet. So it's the front two-thirds of the entire taber tabernacle. And in that room, you have the bread of the presence. There's 12 loaves of bread that are eaten on the Sabbath. And what those represent is that God provides for each of the 12 tribes 
of Israel. God is the God who is there, and he's the God that provides. And then you also have a golden lampstand. The word that we would use for this is a menorah. And so it looks like an almond tree in blossom. It's incredibly ornate, and it had seven branches. And, and this, the, the almond branch aspect of it represents life, and the light represents the light of God's presence. Additionally, you also have the altar of incense in the room, which kept burning as long as the tabernacle was set up, and it represented a pleasing aroma before God. It represented the prayers of God's people. And what the holy place symbolized is that the people of God did not have access to the presence of God directly. That's why it's called the holy place. Only the holy can enter. Only those who have been cleansed. Only those who are cleansed of sin and go through these various rituals. And then we move even closer where the direct presence of God was said to dwell. And that place is called the Holy of Holies. So this place is 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. And that's no coincidence. The the cube is meant to represent the perfection of God. The dimensions are all equal. It's separated from the holy place by a four-inch thick, 15-foot-tall curtain. It took 100 priests to move this curtain. It was so heavy. It's made of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with more cherubim embroidered into it, those angelic creatures that minister in God's presence. It contained the Ark of the Covenant, which hung on four poles made of wood that were overlaid with gold. There were two additional dark-colored, massive, thick curtains. Basically, this place was shrouded in mystery, and what everyone in Israel knew is God is in there. God is in there. The access was so limited that only this one person called the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and he could only go in there one time a year on a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement when God atoned for the sins of the people of Israel. And they would actually take a rope and they would tie it around his ankle so that as he went into the Holy of Holies, if God struck him dead, that they would not have to enter the Holy of Holies to get his body out, but they would just be able to pull him out with the rope. And so the people of Israel knew that God was with them in humility, but also that God was with them in holiness. If you even think back to last week's message, I think there's a connection here. And that's, as we're called to be salt and light, we said we're, we're called to be fully engaged, fully present in the culture, but we're also called to be distinct from the culture. God is the ultimate example of salt and light, fully present with his people, and yet entirely distinct and different and other than them. 
So can you imagine the feeling that you would have as an Israelite sort of on a normal day and to walk up to that fence on the outside and just to look in and to think, God lives in that tent in the midst of his people. I don't know if you've ever had this this feeling before. Maybe you've had that feeling in the presence of God, but, but let me sort of just bring this back down to earth for you. I remember having a similar feeling. You guys are gonna laugh at this story, but going to game three of the 1998 NBA finals as a kid, okay? So at that point in my life, Michael Jordan sort of rivaled God for the supreme place in my heart. And I got to go see Michael Jordan play live. And so I'll never forget, there's all this fanfare leading up to the game, but one of the aspects that I loved is getting to see all the players drive their cars into the tunnel. And so there's these fences set up as if to say, you peons don't have access to these people. And you stand here and you get to watch them come in. And so I remember seeing you know, Dennis Rodman and Scottie Pippen and Luke Longley and all these different guys who, who I also thought were awesome drive in. But everyone is waiting for the glory of Michael Jordan to appear, right? And, and what happened was actually... All I saw of Michael Jordan, the other players would get out of their car outside of the building and wave at the crowd. And Michael Jordan just quickly drove his Ferrari into the garage. And all you saw was on the back of the license plate, his airness. And I remember thinking, whoa, (laughs) Michael Jordan was in that car. And I think similarly, although to a much greater degree, that's what... You try to illustrate it. Come on. To a much greater degree, that's what the Israelites are thinking. They're looking at this building, at this tent, and they're saying, God is in there. He's holy. We don't have access to him. Which raises this question for all of us today. What is God's heart toward us? What does he think of us? Who is the God who is with us and is holy? Does he have affection for us? Or if we came into his presence, would he push us away? And I think we get an indication of who this God is in this passage. We see that God is with us in mercy. So despite his holiness, what God was communicating to Israel was that he is a God of mercy. Let me quickly define the word mercy for us. So mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. So God has the power to punish or harm Israel because he's so distinct, he's so different, he's so perfect, and they are so broken. But what we see is that instead of punishing and harming them, he primarily chooses to show them mercy. And we actually see this as we get to sort of the central article within the Holy of Holies. And so we're going to spend some time looking at the Ark of the Covenant, also called the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of God. And we've got 
some pictures of that. Okay, so the Ark of the Covenant was made out of Acadia wood and overlaid with gold. There were poles that were used to carry the Ark because God said, if you touch the Ark, you die. Just ask this guy named Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. The Ark fell off of a cart and he happened to touch it and God struck him dead on the spot. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's staff that had budded. So this is the staff that Aaron carried around that God worked miraculous powers through. And it had budded as sort of a miracle, like a tree buds. And so it represented the power of God. So that's inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And also there was a jar of manna. And the manna represented God's provision for his people. So this bread-like substance would rain down from heaven every day to feed the people of Israel. So God is powerful, God provides, and then also inside of the Ark of the Covenant was God's law, the Ten Commandments, written on stone tablets, which were to show that God is righteous, God is holy, God is perfect. And his standard for his people never changes. He demands absolute perfection out of them and out of us. And above this Ark of the Covenant, sort of the lid, was called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And on the mercy seat, there were these cherubim, which are pictured here. And um, some people think that the cherubim are those that are described in Ezekiel and Revelation and that they actually had four faces, four wings, human hands, lion-like bodies, and that they were massive. Other people think that they look like this picture, more sort of human-like creatures with large wings that stretched over the top of the Ark of the Covenant. But the important thing for us to realize is that God's presence was specifically concentrated above the Ark of the Covenant. God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies, but more specifically, between the cherubim above the mercy seat. So here's what would happen on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, and he would take blood, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. In other words, he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on God himself. And here's what that was meant to represent. You and I, because we are sinful people, deserve to die. We deserve to have our blood shed. And instead, what God is saying is, put the blood on me. Put the blood on me. The mercy seat was protecting the people of God from the judgment of God. And so it's the example of God withholding his judgment from his people and taking it on himself. But here's what we know. 
This was only a symbol. It was pointing to a much greater reality. Here's how we know that. Because Yom Kippur continued to happen year after year. Every year, the people's sins would be atoned for and the blood would be sprinkled on the God who's sitting on the mercy seat, which meant that the forgiveness of sins in a complete way, never actually took place. Which is why Jesus came. Okay, let me read a couple passages for you. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So look at those words, dwelt among us. It literally means pitched his tent among us. It more literally means that Jesus Christ tabernacled among us. What John is saying is Jesus is the true tabernacle. It's in him that the mercy of God is found. It's in him that God is holy. It is in him that God is preeminently humble. And for what purpose did Jesus tabernacle among us? Why did he come and pitch his tent among us? The author of Hebrews fills us in, Hebrews chapter 9, 24 through 26. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, these places we've been talking about, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus pitched his tent among us so that he could become the priest who goes into the Holy of Holies, but not only the priest, but so that he could also become the lamb and that his blood would be sprinkled in the presence of God, not every year, not as we rededicate our lives to Christ, but once for all to take away the sins of his people. So if we place our faith in that, the reality for us is it's finished. He's for us. He's with us. He's merciful to us. He's not against us. And the whole purpose of the tabernacle is not to bring us back into religion or back into some ritual, but it is to bring us to Jesus Christ. And so I'm asking you this Christmas, if you don't know Jesus, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He's merciful He has all the power in the world to punish you for your sins, but instead of punishing 
you for your sins, his heart is to show you mercy, to withhold that punishment for you by taking the punishment in your place. So Jesus has come. He has paid the price. And the message of Christmas is that God is a God of mercy. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are here with us and that we know your heart, that you um, spent the time throughout the scriptures to intimately communicate these details of the tabernacle for us, to vividly portray before our eyes who you are in your heart. And we thank you that you are with us. And not only that you're with us, but that you're humble, that you're holy, and that you are a merciful high priest. In Jesus' name, amen.